Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 8th day of February, 2009. I'd like to welcome all my listeners to the Corbett Report and remind all of my listeners, as always, to check out CorbettReport.com, where you can access previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos created by the Corbett Report in the past. Of course, you'll also be able to find a documentation list with today's episode, providing links to all of the documents cited in today's episode and sorted by time index. I'd also like to encourage my listeners to click on the subscribe button on CorbettReport.com so you can subscribe to all of our RSS feeds, including our article feed, interview feed, video feed, and of course this podcast feed. Of course, all of our RSS subscriptions are completely free and enable you to keep up to date with all of the updates to the website. Or if you're unfamiliar with RSS feeds, you can always sign up for our email subscription list and you'll receive an email every week after the latest podcast episode is uploaded. And we'll also be sending out an email to subscribers of the email list once the next installment of the Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist documentary is uploaded. So please keep your eye out for that. And now... Without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Our first real news story this week comes from Time Magazine at time.com, Thursday, February 5th, 2009. New World Order. The global discussion of the financial crisis is strikingly different from the one in the U.S. Here, there's still something of a debate over whether the mess is the result of too much government interference in the housing market or too little government regulation of financial markets. In the rest of the world, that's no debate. Inadequate and inconsistent financial regulation is uniformly blamed. What's more, a consensus seems to have emerged among the world's finance ministers and central bank bosses that the chief underlying cause of the crisis was an unbalanced and out-of-control system of global capital flows in which some big spender countries, namely the U.S., ran up huge debts, while big savers, China and India, for example, hoarded surpluses. On the regulatory front, the path to a new global approach is pretty clear. Last spring, the leaders of the G7, a club of wealthy nations, agreed to create a college of supervisors to more closely coordinate regulation of multinational banks. The Group of 30, an influential organization of current and former central bankers and financial regulators, recommended in January that systematically significant financial institutions, those that are too big to fail, be identified in advance and subjected to higher capital requirements and tougher regulation. Yet regulators around the world were already jointly setting bank capital standards before the current crisis hit. A lot of good that did us. 
So there is also much talk about the need for a new architecture. A new bread and woods was a phrase that echoed around Davos to rein in global financial flows. After the emerging market currency collapses of the late 1990s, in which IMF aid wasn't much help, the lesson that emerging economies such as China and India took was that they needed to build up gigantic reserves of U.S. dollars to protect their currencies. To build those reserves, they ran big trade surpluses, which were in turn enabled mainly by record trade deficits in the U.S., which were in turn enabled by massive borrowing from around the world. It was an extremely unbalanced financial ballet, and it has now come crashing to the ground. In the view of many outside the U.S. and some within, the only way to limit such excesses is through a bigger, more powerful IMF that can act as a central bank to the world and knock heads when needed. While everybody agrees that this new IMF needs to be less dominated by the U.S. and Western Europe. Things get controversial as soon as you go past voting rights. Should capital flows be restricted? Should there be limits on trade deficits and surpluses? Should the IMF be able to order around even the U.S.? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, global capitalism will have entered a new and dramatically less freewheeling era. Our second real news story this week comes from the Goldburn Post, fourth of February two thousand nine. Bid for new world order. You could almost hear the chortles from the right wings of the Liberal Party when they heard Kevin Rudd talking about the need for a new world order. They will argue that there's nothing wrong with the present system that a bit of putty won't cover up. But Malcolm Turnbull's mob would be most unwise to dismiss the Prime Minister's words because he is right. Changes are needed, and he's not the only advocate for a new world order. The main problem is that most of the others aren't sure what sort of world order they want. The fact is that the extreme left, communism, has failed, and the extreme right of neoconservatism has also failed. So something in between is needed. What they called economic capitalism failed for the same reason communism failed. The people in charge started to believe the system was designed just to suit them. So, what sort of new world order should we be looking for? Mr. Rudd favors a social democratic system. Some world leaders want to nationalize banks and give governments more control to avoid the excesses of the extreme right. One influential American journal even said that Karl Marx's economic theories might have been right after all. Kevin Rudd is certainly not alone in his quest for a new world order. One federal liberal frontbencher says the liberals need to change direction if they are to remain relevant. There will almost certainly be a new world order, and only those political parties capable of creating a viable system that is fair to everyone are likely to succeed. Our third real news story today comes from Reuters, February seventh, two thousand nine. Asia Sea Banks call for new world financial order. Asian central banks called on Saturday for a new framework to regulate global financial markets as the world grapples with the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. The Southeast Asian central bank's grouping said it backed calls for a doubling of the International Monetary Fund's resources to five hundred twenty billion dollars in order to help it cope with the financial crisis, and called for deeper regional cooperation. Our fourth real news story today comes from Raw Story, 
February 1st, 2009. Obama preserves rendition two days after taking office. Two days after taking the helm of a country ready for change after eight years of George W. Bush, President Obama has allowed one controversial war on terror tactic to remain in place. Rendition. Despite frequent condemnation of the practice around the world, rendition, the secret capture, transportation, and detention of suspected terrorists to foreign prisons in countries that cooperate with the U.S., remains in the CIA's playbook, thanks to a January 22nd executive order issued by President Obama. Obama and his administration appear to believe that the rendition program was one piece of the Bush administration's war on terrorism that it could not afford to discard, the Los Angeles Times reported. An administration official told the newspaper anonymously, Obviously you need to preserve some tools. You still have to go after the bad guys. The legal advisors working on this looked at rendition. It is controversial in some circles and kicked up a big storm in Europe. But if done within certain parameters, it is an acceptable practice. Our final real news story today comes from Comcast.net. January 31st, 2009. When you watch these ads, the ads check you out. Watch an advertisement on a video screen in a mall, health club, or grocery store, and there's a slim but growing chance the ad is watching you too. Small cameras can now be embedded in the screen or hidden around it, tracking who looks at the screen and for how long. The makers of the tracking system say the software can determine the viewer's gender, approximate age range, and, in some cases, ethnicity, and can change the ads accordingly. That could mean razor ads for men, cosmetics ads for women, and video game ads for teens. And even if the ads don't shift based on which people are watching, the technology's ability to determine the viewer's demographics is golden for advertisers who want to know how effectively they're reaching their target audience. While the technology remains in limited use for now, advertising industry analysts say it is finally beginning to live up to its promise. The manufacturers say their systems can accurately determine gender 85 to 90% of the time, while accuracy for the other measures continues to be refined. Because face tracking might feel reminiscent of Big Brother, manufacturers are racing to offer reassurances. When the systems capture an image of who's watching the screen, a computer instantly analyzes it. The system's manufacturers insist, however, that nothing is ever stored, and no identifying information is ever associated with the pictures. That makes the system less intrusive than a surveillance camera that records what it sees, the developers say. Welcome, my friends, to episode 73 of the Corbett Report, The Smartening Up of Society. I believe the title for today's episode is in itself non-intuitive or counterintuitive at any rate, as I'm sure most of my listeners are aware of the idea that there is a dumbing down going on in society. That is to say, a reduction in the general public's ability with certain core competencies. 
The idea that the general population is becoming less capable of formulating and expressing their own ideas is one that is, of course, backed up by ample circumstantial evidence. Recent polls have shown a fifth of Americans can't locate the U.S. on a world map. Why do you think this is? I personally believe that U.S. Americans are unable to do so because uh, some people out there in our nation don't have maps and uh, I believe that our ed education, like such as in South Africa and uh, the Iraq, everywhere like such as, and I believe that they should, uh, our education over here in the U.S. should help the U.S. or should help South Africa and should help the Iraq and the Asian countries so we will be able to build up our future for our children. Thank you very much, South Carolina. As I say, there is no dearth of circumstantial evidence pointing to the idea that there is a general dumbing down happening in our society. But perhaps it could be argued that taking clips of Miss Teen South Carolina is cherry-picking the evidence and that there is in fact not a general dumbing down happening in our society. So in order to move away from the circumstantial evidence for a dumbing down and towards something more scientific, let's turn to a medical researcher for more information about the dumbing down of society. Let's listen to the comments of Dr. Russell Blaylock, a certified neurosurgeon who practiced neurosurgery for 25 years before retiring from that practice to pursue nutritional studies and research. Information about Russell Blaylock, as well as links to some of his published papers, DVDs, audio lectures, and other supplementary materials, can be accessed at his website, russellblaylockmd.com. But he has some very interesting things to say on the subject, so let's listen to Russell Blaylock talking about the chemical dumbing down of society. We're developing a society because of all of these different toxins known to affect brain function. We're seeing a society that not only has a lot more people of lower IQ, but a lot fewer people of higher IQ. In other words, a dumbing down, a chemical dumbing down of society. So everyone's sort of mediocre. That leaves them dependent on government because they can't excel. We have these people of lower IQ who are totally dependent. Then we have this mass of people who are going to believe anything they're told because they can't really think clearly. And very few people of very high IQ who have good cognitive function who can figure this all out. And that's what they want. So, you know, you can kind of piece it together as to why they are so insistent in spending so many hundreds of millions of dollars of propaganda money to dumb down society. I think Dr. Russell Blaylock raises three distinct but intertwined topics in that video clip. Namely, one, that there is a chemical dumbing down of society taking place through the insertion of neurotoxins into the environment, Two, that this dumbing down makes us more dependent on government and susceptible to government propaganda. And three, that hundreds of millions of dollars are being spent annually to propagandize to us that this is not taking place. To be sure, these are some astounding claims and ones that I think we owe it to ourselves to check into. So let's deal with Dr. Blaylock's first assertion first. 
that neurotoxins in the environment are in fact causing a chemical dumbing down. Needless to say, there are several candidates for toxic chemicals being pumped out into our environment at ever-increasing rates that it would behoove us to look into, such as, of course, MSG, fluoride, and aspartame. And perhaps we'll get into a study of those neurotoxins in more detail in a future episode of the Corbett Report podcast. But today I'd like to concentrate on the presence of another neurotoxin in our environment, one that has long been known to cause neural degeneration, and one for which there is an overwhelming amount of scientific evidence of its neurotoxicity. How Mercury Causes Brain Neuron Degeneration Mercury has long been known to be a potent neurotoxic substance, whether it is inhaled or consumed in the diet as a food contaminant. Over the past 15 years, medical research laboratories have established that dental amalgam tooth fillings are a major contributor to mercury body burden. In 1997, a team of research scientists demonstrated that mercury vapor inhalation by animals produced a molecular lesion in brain protein metabolism which was similar to a lesion seen in 80% of Alzheimer diseased brains. Recently completed experiments by scientists at the University of Calgary's Faculty of Medicine now reveal, with direct visual evidence from brain neuron tissue cultures, how mercury ions actually alter the cell membrane structure of developing neurons. These new findings reveal important visual evidence as to how mercury causes neurodegeneration. More importantly, this study provides the first direct evidence that low-level mercury exposure is indeed a precipitating factor that can initiate this neurodegenerative process within the brain. I would suggest my listeners go to the documentation list for today's episode in order to watch that entire video, because although the video does contain a lot of scientific jargon that is highly inaccessible to anyone unfamiliar with neurology like myself, it does contain some very interesting animations and also some visuals of actual brain tissue being destroyed by mercury. But I think there were also a couple of points that we can take from the audio clip that I just played, one of which being that the microscopic lesions caused by mercury damage to brain tissue is almost indistinguishable from that seen by the majority of Alzheimer's patients. And secondly, oh, by the way, medical science has been completely wrong all along about the toxicity of things like mercury amalgam fillings, which dentists use to fill your cavities. But it's certainly nothing that you'll get upset about or sue anyone over, right? At least now that you're showing signs of early-onset Alzheimer's. I shouldn't be sarcastic about these things, and I shouldn't joke about them. They're very serious issues, but it just no longer surprises me to find out that just by mistake, just by accident, the very things that they have been putting in our bodies for years and telling us are completely safe and telling us we're quacks if we believe otherwise, now turns out is in fact actually eating through your brain tissue. Of course, another common source of mercury these days comes from thimerosal, a prevalent ingredient in vaccines, including the flu vaccine, which the government is telling us we must get each year, even though it's a complete crapshoot what strain of the flu is going to be prevalent in any given year. So there's no way for them to guarantee that the flu vaccine will even be for the right strain. But regardless, it contains thimerosal, a mercury-based preservative. And in the case of this particular neurotoxin, the effect on human lives and families is almost incalculable. 
Let's listen to one of the outspoken and articulate critics of the insane practice of putting a known neurotoxin as a common preservative in our vaccines, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Thimerosal is a preservative that was put in vaccines back in the 1930s. Almost immediately after it was put in, autism cases began to appear. Autism had never been known before. It was unknown to science. Then the vaccines were increased in 1989 by the CDC and by a couple of other government agencies. Okay, let me stop you there. That's an important date, and I'll tell you why. My, my son, born in 1991, uh, has a, a slight form of autism called Asperger's. Right. But it seemed, and again, when I was practicing law, and also when I was in Congress, parents would constantly come to me, and they'd bring me videotapes of their children, and they were all around the age of my son That's or exactly. younger. The so generation something happened in 1989. Exactly. The generation, what happened was the vaccine schedule was increased. We went up from receiving about 10 vaccines in our generation to these kids received 24 vaccines. And they all had this thimerosal in them, this mercury. And nobody bothered to do an analysis of what the cumulative impact of all that mercury was doing to kids. As it turns out, we are injecting our children with 400 times the amount of mercury that FDA or EPA consider safe. A, a child on his first day that he's born um, is injected with a hepatitis B shot. The, uh, under EPA guidelines, he would be have to have to be 275 pounds to safely absorb that shot. And, and, and yet, we're just constantly pumping our kids and, with these vaccines. Where's right, the federal and what government? Happened, in all what this? happened was that um, in 1988, one in every 2,500 American children had autism. Today, one in every 166 children have autism, and plus one in six children have other kinds of learning disorders, uh, other kinds of neurological disorders, speech delay, language disorders, ADD, hyperactivity, that all seem to be connected, that are all connected, the science shows are all connected to Bob, autism. You know, Bobby, what we've always aerosol. found, you and I could, could debate a thousand different issues, whether it's Terry Shiva or the environment, I think would agree on the environment. Um, but in this case, you've got the federal government coming in saying, well, there's no really, there's no good science. And of course, in politics, science always gets diluted. Why hasn't the federal government stepped up and, well, and, is... and worked more? Because listen, Bobby, I can't prove it tonight. You can't prove it. But intuitively, you look at the spike, you look at what happened with the Marisol, there is no doubt in my mind, maybe it's two years from now, maybe it's five years from now, maybe it's ten years from now, we're going to find out that the Marisol causes, in my opinion, autism. You know what? The science is out there today for anybody who bothers to read it. And I, I have read it actually on my website this week, robertfkennedyjr.com. I'm publishing an article that goes through all of the science. Um, but the science is clear. And what happens is I read the science at first, and there's literally hundreds and hundreds of studies that connect thimerosal to, you know, to these disastrous neurological disorders. Then I went, I talked to the scientists, then I went and I talked to the federal bureaucrats who are defending thimerosal. And I said, what are you relying on? And I looked at the science they're relying on. And I can tell you, Joe, it is so weak. And you and I have seen, you know, in legal practice, when junk science, and we know, 
you know, what these phony scientists are who create this stuff. It happened in big tobacco. Right. Tobacco. It happens in and big oil. Is, and it's is, happening in global warming. And, and now it's happening in a way that's impacting is, our kids' lives. This is classic tobacco science. It is junk science. And I was looking at these reports and saying, this is the best. This is what you're relying on. They know it's fraudulent. Okay. And now we have the transcripts. Expl explain it to me, Bobby, okay? I mean, explain it to me. If that's the case... Okay, you, you and I both know about politics, obviously. Politicians like to get reelected. Why are they sitting back and if, if, if our children are being poisoned, if the science is there, why are they sitting back and letting our children uh, be poisoned? Because the, 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 the same regulatory bureaucrats that green-lighted uh, Flint Marisol originally are now trying to cover their tracks. It's a CYA and, operation. Right, and they're working with the pharmaceutical industry, and we now have the transcripts of this secret meeting that they did in Simpsonwood, Georgia, in, two, in the year 2000, and it's the most horrifying thing that you can read, Joe. There are scientists there from the government who are saying, who are reading the reports and saying, we, this is undeniable, there is no, there is no, um, there's no way we can ever deny this, I'm not going to give this to my children, but now let's hide this from the American people. And it's, you know, it is that clear, and this is what I write about. It's this, this language that I, you know, that I write about in the Rolling Stone piece and the Salon piece that, you know, is so shocking, where we have the guys who are supposed to be protecting Americans' health who are actually conspiring to keep this stuff in the vaccine. Well, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. used the word conspire, so that must make him a conspiracy theorist. Therefore, I don't have to listen to anything that he says because he's just a raving, frothing conspiracy theorist. Indeed. Well, I will put a link in the document section of today's episode to the article referred to in that clip from the Joe Scarborough Show. The article being Deadly Immunity by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., which appeared in Rolling Stone in 2005 and contains this particularly chilling passage. Quote, you couldn't even construct a study that shows the Marisol is safe, says Haley, who heads the chemistry department at the University of Kentucky. It's just too darn toxic. If you inject the Marisol into an animal, its brain will sicken. If you apply it to living tissue, the cells die. If you put it in a Petri dish, the culture dies. Knowing these things, it would be shocking if one could inject it into an infant without causing damage. Internal documents reveal that Eli Lilly, which first developed the Marisol, knew from the start that its product could cause damage, and even death, in both animals and humans. In 1930, the company tested thimerosal by administering it to 22 patients with terminal meningitis, all of whom died within weeks of being injected, a fact Lilly didn't bother to report in its study declaring thimerosal safe. In 1935, researchers at another vaccine manufacturer, Pittman Moore, warned Lilly that its claims about thimerosal safety did not check with ours. Half the dogs Pittman injected with thimerosal-based vaccines became sick, leading researchers there to declare the preservative unsatisfactory as a serum intended for use on dogs. End quote. And keep in mind, yes, this is in every single batch of flu vaccine, except for a very small quantity of vaccines that are administered by the CDC each year that specifically do not contain thimerosal. But those ones you have to specifically ask for. Every dose that is administered without such a request contains this toxic chemical, as do many of the childhood vaccinations administered in the United States. 
but not even taking into account the mercury that we're exposed to on a daily basis through the mercury amalgam fillings in our mouth and not counting the mercury that we're exposed to through the vaccines, now we found another source of mercury to worry about. From medicalnewstoday.com, 27th of January 2009, this story. Mercury found in high fructose corn syrup used as food sweetener. Quote, Researchers in the U.S. found that much of the high-fructose corn syrup that is increasingly replacing sugar in processed foods is tainted with mercury, a metal that is toxic to humans. They also tested many branded food products and found they too contained mercury. The findings come from two studies, one of which is published in the journal Environmental Health, and the other is by the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Dr. David Wallinga, who works at the IATP, was involved in both studies. He told the press that mercury was toxic in all its forms, and that, given how much high-fructose corn syrup is consumed by children, it could be a significant additional source of mercury never before considered. End quote. So it's at this point that we can return to the third assertion by Dr. Blaylock in that audio clip from the beginning of today's episode, Namely, that hundreds of millions of dollars are being spent in propaganda to try to convince and brainwash the public into accepting the chemical dumbing down. Because, as it turns out, there's really nothing bad you can say about high fructose corn syrup. Hey! hey. <laughs> wow. You don't care what the kids eat, huh? Excuse me? That has high fructose corn syrup in it. And? Yeah, you know what they say about it? Like what? Honey, it's that it's made from corn, doesn't have artificial ingredients, and like sugar, it's fine in moderation. Love that top. There were no facts there, but the image is the trendy, cool, you know, lady knows what's going on. This dumb idiot comes over and says, what are the facts? And she's like, uh-uh, uh, I don't know any, uh-uh. I mean, and all the ads are the same. It's peer pressure. <laughs> you want a bite? I thought you loved me. I do. Take two bites. It's got high fructose corn syrup in it. So? Well, you know what they say about it. Why? That it's, uh, um. That it's made from corn? has the same calories as sugar, honey, and it's fine in moderation. Okay, so there's ad after 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 ad all over TV, the Super Bowl. That's the one I've seen on the Super Bowl, and it's the same thing. That's corn syrup. I heard that's not good. Oh, really? You heard it's not good? What's your facts? And always, he's the guy wanting the girl. Have you seen the ads where they hold up a beer, and it's a hot chick, and you're really wanting her? But the association is the Kirsch Light or the Budweiser or whatever with the woman. Basic psychology, basic advertising one-on-one. Well, here it's the good-looking girl, beautiful day, the popsicles in a sunny day, under the shade, perfect, giggling background noises because it's primitive, you know, creatures. We like the sound of giggling children, happy people, and there's a sound of rustling, wind. You know, that was to target men who want a mate. And associating, at the primitive level, you will get the mate. And the red lollipop symbolizes sex. Uh, the uh, red uh, popsicle, red is the symbol of sex. Th folks, I took advertising. This is psych warfare, okay? And they're sitting there with it. 
So it's a, it's a tasty-looking popsicle. It symbolizes sex in the Freudian school. They have several other schools in there. Uh, there's the giggling children, the happiness. This is a Garden of Eden, and in the middle of the Garden of Eden is this fruit growing, this red fruit. It is the red popsicle. And then at the intellectual level, he's an idiot. He shot his mouth off, but she showed him the woman. Now, for the woman, she sees this, and the girl's giggling up above him like the goddess. I just covered how it affects the man, the psych warfare on his angle. For the woman, she's up above him in the garden. She's happy, the sound of giggling children. She has the popsicle. It's the center of everything. And she shows that she's more knowledgeable and lovingly giggles at the fool. Now, there's other layers to this, but I just covered it, basically. This is what they're doing everywhere. And they have different types of propaganda they use, and they interwove them. Well, be that as it may, and yes, as it turns out, maybe high fructose corn syrup does contain mercury, but it turns out that mercury is actually good for you. Mercury-containing vaccines may have on kids. A life-saving device wins over-the-counter approval by the FDA. And sick of your glasses and contact lenses, a new corrective eye surgery is approved today. Here's tonight's medical headlines with Medical Watch reporter Seema Mather. Mercury-containing vaccines may help not harm kids, according to two new studies in the journal Pediatrics. There have been widespread concerns that mercury-based preservatives and vaccines might impair the neurological development of children. These new studies suggest that the opposite, that the preservatives may actually be associated with improved behavior and mental performance. Yes, as incredible as that report does sound, it really did play on American television network news. And for those who think that such incredible, ridiculous attempts to cover up an aging and cracking facade of lies surrounding the truth about mercury, especially as the mercury in the vaccine's dam is just starting to burst in the mainstream pop culture, well, it also happens in many other aspects of health-related government studies. And one of those could be found, for example, from a November 29th, 2008 article from naturalnews.com with the headline, 90% of U.S. infant formula may be contaminated with melamine. FDA abruptly declares chemicals safe for babies. Again, I would suggest you go and take a look at that document from the today's documentation list. But suffice it to say, I think we've proven the point pretty effectively that, one, Dr. Blaylock was correct when he asserted that there is a chemical dumbing down of society that is taking place because of chemical neurotoxins which are finding their way into our bodies in one way or another. And three, there is a massive propaganda machinery at work trying to convince us that this is not taking place. So I guess what we have left to cover is Dr. Blaylock's second assertion. Namely, that the dumbing down of society leaves us more dependent on government. Now, I think we can understand in some generalities how this may be the case, but to get more insight into exactly how these two things correlate, that is to say the dumbing down and the dependence on government, let's take leave of the subject of the chemical dumbing down of society and turn to the dumbing down of society in general. And to do that, why don't we take a look at the person who brought the term dumbing down into the vernacular, John Taylor Gatto. John Taylor Gatto is a public lecturer and author on the subject of the school system, having taught for 30 years in public education in New York City, 
having been named New York City Teacher of the Year on three occasions and New York State Teacher of the Year on one occasion. John Taylor Gatto is quite simply a remarkable man and an incredible thinker on the subject of education, and his writings and thoughts on the subject are absolutely indispensable, and therefore I could not recommend checking out his website strongly enough. The website is johntaylorgatto.com, and of course you can go to the documentation list for today's episode for a direct link, not only to his website, but also to some other resources, media, and documents that I think might be interesting for my listeners to explore when they're beginning their exploration of John Taylor Gatto and his thought. But let's start our exploration of the correlation between the dumbing down of society and the dependence on government by listening to a clip from an interview which John Taylor Gatto had on C-SPAN, where he talks about that relationship. New York City? Uh, yes, good morning, Mr. Gatto. Uh, wonderful to listen to you this morning. Um, I become addicted to C-SPAN, and uh, I just love the program. Uh, yeah, the reason why I'm calling is uh, when the referendum on Lado was passed years ago, it was to bail out the educational system and I keep asking people what's happening with the proceeds and I'm being told that uh, it's being used to balance the budget um, I'm also taking classes at Cornell University uh, I'm very much involved with the labor movement I just lost my job it was canceled you know they did away with my line after 25 years so I'm presently looking for another job right now but I'm but I'm uh, pro-union and when I asked my uh, professor about what happened to the proceeds of Lotto, he told me that that was just a tax a burden on poor people, and I'd like your comments on that. Mr. Gatto. Well, I, let me comment on, on, on the caller's offhand remark that he just lost his job. Several extremely fine educational systems, small ones, uh, the ones used in northeastern, excuse me, northwestern Spain, the one used by the old order Amish, aim to produce an independent livelihood in each kid under their direction. So rather than think of your working life as as necessarily being made up of jobs, you you think of independence in, in your livelihood. You think of being useful to other people and exchanging your services for money. Kids can be taught this. We would have a much different kind of economy uh, if schools actually taught people to have independent livelihoods. We couldn't afford to have these huge centralized corporations any longer because what they do is blot up the opportunity for work. Uh, and they return a, a somewhat inferior product. Uh, so, so the idea of schooling being connected to the economy intimately uh, is a necessary awakener uh, to, 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 to bring public awareness up to speed. If we change schooling substantially, the economy will disintegrate and reform as something else. You, you talk about in your article in Harper's that uh, the uh, mass schooling in the U.S. is set up on the Prussian system? It is a Prussian system. The, uh, let me turn that uh, rather recondite illusion into something that's just common sense. The three traditional purposes of schooling in human history, that is turning your child over to strangers, are first 
to make good people. Call that the religious purpose, even though it can be done in a secular fashion. The, the second purpose of schooling that everyone would agree with is to make good citizens. The difficulty in the United States in the 21st century is that we have redefined what that means from being an active participant and giving your opinion in a compelling fashion to being a good boy or girl and taking orders. So to be a good person, to be a good citizen, the third purpose that everyone would agree with is to make each person their personal best. Prussia, about 200 years ago, decided to introduce a novel fourth purpose. By the way, that's the name of a a film that I'm engaged in making now, and if you go to my website, you can learn about that. The fourth purpose of schooling is to look at children as human resources at the disposal of both the political managers and the economic managers, and they then shape this human resource material any way that makes management more efficient. It's a disaster humanly, even though economically, uh, it, it works quite well. I hope that even a sliver of John Taylor Gatto's thought and wit come through in that audio clip, because it did take me a long time to try to isolate just one four- or five-minute section of John Taylor Gatto's speaking, which even begins to encapsulate some of the incredible ideas and thoughts that he has on public education. So once again, I strongly recommend my listeners to start exploring his work for yourself. But suffice it to say, in that clip, at any rate, Gatto starts to draw out the fourth purpose of education from the Prussian school system, which was brought over to America. The fourth purpose of public education being, of course, to mold students into good human resources to be used as obedient workers in the corporate slave state. Now, again, this is an idea which takes a lot of fleshing out and has a lot of history to it, history which my listeners may already be somewhat familiar with. If you can cast your mind back to episode 26 of this podcast, you might remember an interview that we played between G. Edward Griffin and Norman Dodd, the man who sat on the Reese Commission back in the 1950s and gained access, unprecedented access, to the actual minutes of some of the original board meetings of some of the robber barons' foundations, like the Carnegie's and the Rockefeller's, and discovered that they were instrumental in setting up the education system in America in the mid to late 20th century, and indeed have really shaped that education system towards their own nefarious purposes. So to flesh that out in even more historical detail, let's take a look at Chapter 2 of John Taylor Gatto's book, An Underground History of American Education. Now, this is a monumental 300,000-plus word book, a very voluminous tome indeed, which is available completely for free on JohnTaylorGatto.com. And while I am still working through this voluminous tome myself, I can wholeheartedly recommend it based on what I've read so far. And I'd like to share a passage which goes into a little bit more of the historical detail about how the great robber barons have taken over and used the public education system for their own purposes. So I read from Chapter 2, An Angry Look at Modern Schooling, under the heading Extending Childhood. Quote, From the beginning, there was purpose behind forced schooling, purpose which had nothing to do with what parents, kids, or communities wanted. 
Instead, this grand purpose was forged out of what a highly centralized corporate economy and system of finance, bent on internationalizing itself, was thought to need. That, and what a strong centralized political state needed, too. School was looked upon from the first decade of the 20th century as a branch of industry and a tool of governance. For a considerable time, probably provoked by a climate of official anger and contempt directed against immigrants in the greatest displacement of people in history, social managers of schooling were remarkably candid about what they were doing. In a speech he gave before businessmen prior to the First World War, Woodrow Wilson made this unabashed disclosure. We want one class to have a liberal education. We want another class, a very much larger class of necessity, to forego the privilege of a liberal education and fit themselves to perform specific, difficult manual tasks. By 1917, the major administrative jobs in American schooling were under the control of a group referred to in the press of that day as the Education Trust. The first meeting of this trust included representatives of Rockefeller, Carnegie, Harvard, Stanford, the University of Chicago, and the National Education Association. The chief end, wrote Benjamin Kidd, the British evolutionist, in 1918, was to impose on the young the ideal of subordination. At first, the primary target was the tradition of independent livelihoods in America. Unless Yankee entrepreneurialism could be extinguished, at least among the common population, the immense capital investments that mass production industry required for equipment weren't conceivably justifiable. Students were to learn to think of themselves as employees competing for the favor of management, not as Franklin or Edison had once regarded themselves as self-determined free agents. Only by a massive psychological campaign could the menace of overproduction in America be contained. That's what important men and academics called it. The ability of Americans to think as independent producers had to be curtailed. Certain writings of Alexander Inglis carry a hint of schooling's role in the ultimately successful project to curb the tendency of little people to compete with big companies. From 1880 to 1930, Overproduction became a controlling metaphor among the managerial classes, and this idea would have a profound influence on the development of mass schooling. I know how difficult it is for most of us who mow our lawns and walk our dogs to comprehend that long-range social engineering even exists, let alone that it began to dominate compulsion schooling nearly a century ago. Yet the 1934 edition of Elwood P. Cubberley's Public Education in the United States is explicit about what happened and why. As Cubberley puts it, it has come to be desirable that children should not engage in productive labor. On the contrary, all recent thinking is opposed to their doing so. Both the interests of organized labor and the interests of the nation have set against child labor. The statement occurs in a section of public education called A New Lengthening of the Period of Dependence, in which Cubberley explains that the coming of the factory system has made extended childhood necessary by depriving children of the training and education that farm and village life once gave. With the breakdown of home and village industries, the passing of chores, and the extinction of the apprenticeship system by large-scale production, with its extreme division of labor and the all-conquering march of machinery, an army of workers has arisen, said Coverley, who know nothing. Furthermore, modern industry needs such workers. 
sentimentality could not be allowed to stand in the way of progress. According to Cubberly, with much ridicule from the public press, the old book subject curriculum was set aside, replaced by a change in purpose, and a new psychology of instruction which came to us from abroad. That last mysterious reference to a new psychology is to practices of dumbed-down schooling, common to England, Germany, and France, the three major world coal powers, other than the United States, each of which had already converted its common population into an industrial proletariat. End quote. Once again, the writings of John Taylor Gatto from his An Underground History of American Education, a book which I cannot recommend strongly enough and is available for free on his website, although of course I would recommend purchasing a copy to help support him and his work. But again, that's just a hint of some of the incredible information contained in there. And yes, we see, once again, surprise, surprise, the same names as ever popping up. The big industrial robber barons of the 19th century, whose families in perpetuity run the foundations which now control our lives in so many ways. And as John Taylor Gatto points out, it's difficult for us to even imagine the possibility of long-range social engineering, even when it is admitted in their own writings. So we've arrived at an impasse in today's episode because it seems that this entire episode is about the dumbing down of society. So why then have I chosen to call it the smartening up of society? It is simply because the combined might of the vast, incalculable resources, both monetary and human, of some of the richest people on the planet, working in concerted effort over a period of decades and centuries to try to dumb down society in order to better control us and make us more compliant workers for the corporate slave state. People continue to fall through the cracks of their system and rise up against them. Human liberty will sprout time and time again. And in this podcast, we've already talked to and highlighted some of the work of incredibly talented, incredibly motivated, incredibly articulate young people who are taking action against the system in order to bring about the peaceful information revolution, which is the only thing which is going to transform our society in a positive way. I refer, of course, to people like Nathan Moulton, the young 20-year-old Calgarian activist, or 22-year-old Luke Rakowski, who's already founded an international organization of grassroots activists who have transformed citizen journalism into a viable alternative media. And yes, there are those even younger, even in high schools and junior high schools all across America and across the world who are waking up to the true political paradigm of freedom versus tyranny. We recently took school pictures. I decided I'd wear my 9-11 Truth Now shirt. I was told that it was appropriate, not against school rules, and therefore I could wear it. I ordered the pictures for $18. When they came in the mail, this is what I noticed. Every single shirt is plain black with no lettering. Obviously, they either removed the lettering or photoshopped a black shirt. I called Lamar's Photography. They said that Principal Dan Bettine called them and told them that they needed to censor the shirt. Schools do not have the right to take away my free speech. 
9-11 Truth Now stands for the firefighters that are dying. And 9-11 Truth Now stands for us helping the families that need their questions answered. We donate money to these sick and dying first responders, and in return, they censor our ideas, putting a nail in the coffin of another firefighter. I didn't break school policy, I didn't break the law, but my principal violated the Constitution. You know what, principal? You know what, authority figure? You know what, Mr. Dan Bettine? You're not going to get away with this. We're not going to be silent about it. You're going to be made an example of. We're going to expose the police state at our school. We're going to expose the Orwellian censorship at our school. And we're going to bring back the First Amendment. We're not going to let you keep us in an uneducated little bubble about our rights and keep pumping out identical working drones into the police state. We don't want to be fascist principals. We don't want to be brutal cops. You're going to let us speak freely and you're going to let us have our ideas. What we have just heard is a clip of Robert Wanick, a 15-year-old at Breckenridge High School in Breckenridge, Minnesota, and a member of We Are Change Minnesota, as well as a 9-11 Truth activist, talking about an incident that occurred at his school last year when he attempted to wear a 9-11 Truth Now t-shirt for his high school photo, which was then photoshopped out at the request of the principal. Well, Robert Wanick has been scoring some incredible successes in the Infowar lately, with some of his videos having been seen hundreds of thousands of times by people around the world who are supporting him as he wakes those around him up to the real political paradigm of freedom versus tyranny by concentrating on the tyranny of the public school system. I'll put a link up to Robert Wanick's YouTube channel from which you can see many of his incredible videos and also to his website, nwoalert.com, where you can keep up to date with all of his various moves in the Infowar, including his latest, an attempt to make a documentary about the history of American indoctrination. And of course, I think people who listen to this report will find it exciting that young people of today are taking up the call to educate themselves and others in the Infowar about the true meaning of freedom. It was with great pleasure, then, that I was able to talk to Robert Wanick earlier today at his home in Minnesota. For listeners who may be hearing you for the first time, tell us about yourself. Uh, why did you first become interested in politics and activism, and how has that informed your experience of the school system? Well, I'm a 16 year, or a 15-year-old sophomore student at Breckenridge High School in Breckenridge, Minnesota, a smaller high school with about 300 students. And um, things that got me involved in the New World Order were uh, basically the violations of the Constitution from the school, basically the way they were um, tampering with our rights and the way that they had total control over the students. And once I started, you know, rebelling against the indoctrination, I opened my eyes to 9-11 Truth and the physics behind 9-11 and the New World Order and the whole puzzle came together and that it was all connected. So explain to us some of the, the different techniques that the school has uh, been using for indoctrinating the students. Well, they, they tell students up front that when you walk in the doorway, you leave all your rights 
at home, uh, no free speech. Uh, you're subjected to unwanted search and seizures. They have drug dogs in. And what they've done is um, they censored my high school photo of having a 9-11 Truth Now shirt on to silence 9-11 Truth. Um, they've called the police on me for mentioning the Constitution and um, refusing to get punished for free speech. And they have been attempting to teach us the New World Order in our American history book. Uh, tell us about that particular part, uh, the New World Order in the textbooks. Well, Chapter 33 of my American history book says America in the New World Order, and it points out how NAFTA is a huge benefit to um, our alliances, which um, which we all know is a part of the New World Order, NAFTA, and the NAFTA superhighways had talks, and it talks about how terrorism is a is a growing epidemic on American streets and how terrorism is on the rise, and people, it basically says that, you know, it's, it's the main focus, and we all know that we, I don't see any terrorism on the streets of America any more than anyone else does, and they talk about how they need to crack down on the war on drugs, which is already a failure, and basically everything that the New World Order is carrying out is being promoted in this chapter as a good thing, just to get the students thinking when they hear New World Order that it's positive and not negative. Very frightening indeed. Well, I suggest that my listeners check out nwoalert.com to find out more information about some of the things that you've been through in your school. But one of the things that I find very positive is the way that you've been fighting back against the school system and even winning some successes. So tell us a little bit about how your activism has started to transform the school. Well, last year, the they they have been doing this for I'm sure years, but as soon as I got in the high school, I noticed they had been doing it immediately. You know, taking away students' rights, monitoring everything, and um, they infringed on my free speech. And they called the police in because I tried to explain to them that I do have a First Amendment, and in their mind, I don't. So I decided, you know, I'll just make a video about it. I didn't think many people would watch. Uh, I didn't have many subscribers or followers on YouTube. But a year later, it's gotten 106,000 hits, and I put the school's number up. People voiced their disgust with the school and the principal. I put the email up. Uh, they ended up issuing an apology, etc. Then they censored my T-shirt of 9-11 Truth. I made another video with about 40,000 hits. More people called. It led to the uncensoring of the shirt and apology and the appearance of it in the yearbook. And I made a video about the New World Order in the textbook, and it's gone completely viral with almost 70,000 hits, and it's been mentioned all over the Internet, and the school's taken flack now for trying to teach us propaganda. So whenever they try to infringe on my rights, what I do is I, I peacefully take it to the Internet, ask people to give their opinions, and I don't incite violence or hate or anything. But it, it's successful. People can see that the school is violating outside of my rights. Well, Robert Winnick, tell us uh, once again about the, the website and your email address for people who want to get in touch, and, and how can people support you in your efforts? Well, you can go to nwo, nwoalert.com and just spread these videos around. Um, just if you, All you need to do is spread these videos around to open-minded people. They will spread them in turn, and before you know it, you will have hundreds upon thousands of people that get the message. And a big way is just subscribing to my videos on YouTube. My YouTube channel, if you type in Robert Wanick, you'll get a flurry of video results. Uh, you click on the channel name, Insane Scare 007, 
and subscribe so you can get the information when it first comes out and you can be effectively spreading it. And another way is getting involved yourself. I see thousands of people commenting on my videos, videos with a thousand comments, videos with almost three thousand comments. But what you guys need to do is it's great to comment on the videos, rate the videos and favorite them, get the channel spread, but you need to get out there and make your own videos. It's you that affects the change you want to see in the world. You, after all, are youth, and you hold the future. So you're going to need to do the stuff I'm doing, and you can affect just the same amount of change, if not bigger. I encourage my listeners to go to CorbettReport.com to download the interview in its entirety, and of course go to NWOAlert.com to start learning more about Robert Wanick and his activities. Once again, it's very exciting to see freedom rising to meet tyranny, and even the youth of today are getting involved. It's a very exciting movement, and we are changes full of such young dynamic individuals who are seeking to make a difference in their local area by bringing the information about the real issues to the attention of others. And that is the most I could ask of anyone listening to this podcast, is that they attempt to get the word out themselves. And of course, an integral part of fighting the dumbing down of society and educating others is, of course, educating yourself and taking full advantage of one of the most incredible moments in human history where literally we have the Library of Alexandria available at our fingertips. Despite what they want to tell you that searching Google will harm the environment and release noxious CO2 into the atmosphere, and despite what they tell you that, oh, you read that on the internet, it must be false, you should be fully consciously aware that this is enemy propaganda designed to stop you from doing the only thing that can truly damage the system, educating yourself and educating others. As always, I leave you to do your own research and get the information out to others. That's it for this week. I'm James Corbett. Join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report.
There are white folks, and then there are ignorant motherfuckers like you.